You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. You know, here's CBS News, Walter Cronkite, and they've got the story of the night. They've got former President Ford in the booth with them. He's going to make history tonight, do something that no former president has ever done. And they hear this loud knocking on the door that won't stop. And it's Barbara Walters from ABC. She wants in. One part of a crazy night in Detroit. Before we talk about that, let's talk a bit about 1982, the Bellevue Stratford Hotel in Philadelphia. It's a Hyatt now. The Democratic Party is seeking to reform itself, but the air conditioning doesn't work. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We're part of Airwave Media Network. That's airwavemedia.com. Lots of other good shows there. Visit the myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com site for a lot more archives. A hot, sweaty go at it is 900 Democratic delegates. Well, we can't call them delegates, because this isn't really a convention. It's a mini-convention. Philadelphia, 1982. This isn't where presidents are picked. Well, it's not supposed to be. Some people want to make it that, but it's supposed to be about serious and intelligent policy, the stuff of wonks, nominating rules, and party positioning, too. Yet, there are the waving politicos, and big cameramen with big cameras filming from their shoulders, crunching out that grandma from Waterloo, Iowa, that might have had some sway in this 1978 micro-convention. This was slicker, or it was supposed to be. The party had it down from 1,600 delegates to 900 and told state parties, add your state officials, your governors, your state legislatures, your county chairs. No need to solicit new attendance and all those grassroots rabble. Let's keep it establishment. Some activists got in anyway. The AC, if it ever was working, broke. Then the elevator car full of grassroots types and polished pals are trapped on the fourth floor. The event they want to get up to is on the 19th. That's former Vice President Mondale's party, who's not running for president yet is running for president. He's only got a little support, even among Democrats at this point. But a party is a party. Refreshments are refreshments. And for this Democratic Party, the last election, 1980, they were kicked in the gut, punched in the nose. Jimmy Carter wins just five states in the District of Columbia. Philadelphia is where they wanted some of this change to happen. Go left, go right, go middle. Embrace tax cuts, oppose them. Should they be, as some felt, 
getting back to more Kennedy-esque liberalism should they go along with the still large Democratic congressional Southern team. John Bro, the senator from Louisiana, wouldn't vote with the party, kept voting with the Reagan White House. He feels ostracized for it, too. He's a Democrat. But what is this, the army? Should the party go with their West Coast with heavy tech support, the so-called Atari Democrats, pro-business, especially tech business, not tied to union? Leon Panetta is one of them here, maybe Gary Hart, or as Tim Worth of Colorado said, call me an Apple Democrat. Should they go with Pat Cadell? The pollster says Democrats need to figure it out, and the answer is baby boomers, yuppies, Alex P. Keaton types, and their more open-minded friends. He's got a favorite. Here's how you don't do it. Ed Koch, running for governor of New York, is trying to figure out how to combat the charges he keeps getting that people don't want to live in urban areas anymore. He's mayor of New York City. Like, for instance, he's asked, why would people want to deal with broken trains, late subways? He says, as opposed to wasting time in a car? Out in the country, wasting time in a pickup truck? When you have to drive 20 miles to buy a gingham dress or a Sears Roebuck suit? This rural American thing, I'm telling you, it's a joke. Now, to be fair, Ed Koch, always a little cagey, wasn't running for president, wasn't running on a national issue. He's running for governor of New York, although there was t some talk about a future Koch presidency, who knows. But that would be it for his dreams of being governor. Another way of doing this was seen in pollster Pat Cadell's prize the senator from Delaware, who introduces himself to a meeting of young Democrats in Augusta, Maine, saying, I'm that dynamic senator from Delaware who would be president if he were older. Biden was just 40. Reagan is the most effective president we've had in a long time, he concedes. We've lacked balance as a party. We have focused primarily on issues of no concern to the American public. party wants cohesion and new rules that will limit newbies at conventions, put in superdelegates, elected state and federal officials who are automatic attendees to the convention. Activists hate this. The head of the Vermont Democratic Party says if they want in the convention, they should run like everyone else. But should Senator Smith or Governor Jones put himself against Miss McGullicutty, the activist of Smithtown, USA? That's the argument. But something else is behind it. No more Jimmy Carter's. No new face, no person taking over the party mechanisms before the party itself has had a chance to weigh in. From the party that two years ago nominated Jimmy Carter a second time. That's what's behind the surface, though no one's saying that. As all of this is being debated, the sight of Philadelphia firemen streaming in to fix the elevator had to be quite the metaphor. Most news missed that tie. Rolling Stone magazine picked up on it. 
But what mattered to the thousand media personnel that signed up for this DNC mini convention in this hotel, more media than attendees or delegates, by the way, was what was on the 19th floor. And that's potential candidates for president. Elevators fixed. The party on the 19th floor commenced. Hiya. Good to see ya. It was Walter Mondale's show. Hiya. When in walks Ted Kennedy. The two are not close. Mondale hates what Kennedy did to the 1980 ticket. But politics demands behaviors. They shake hands. Kennedy steals the show, takes cameras with him. They're following Kennedy even though it's Mondale's party. It mirrors what's going on nationally. Ted Kennedy is leading Mondale in polls of people who haven't announced running yet, 48 to 31. The poll asks Democratic voters another question. What if Carter ran? That's Kennedy 51 to 31. Jimmy Carter was the last man to be president. As a one-termer, there's no constitutional prohibition from him technically running again for president. But Carter's not in Philadelphia for the mini-convention. He sends his regrets. He's on a fishing trip in Quebec. That's okay with much of the Democratic leadership at this time. Bob Strauss had run the DNC and had run both of Carter's campaigns, but now called him failed. Mondale is eager to run. He, reporters notice, doesn't mention Carter much, but he snaps back when a reporter says he's distancing. Who's distancing? He was proud of being on that ticket. I was vice president for President Carter, and you don't see me running from that at all. I'm running on my policies for the future. I'm running for president based on what a Mondale administration will be. As the New York Times noted, perhaps the most significant disagreement with Mondale and his boss was over the crisis of confidence speech, named in history as the Malaise speech that Mr. Carter delivered in July 1979, instead of a speech on energy. Mondale, who had argued strenuously against the president making that speech, does not dispute that he went so far as to describe as crazy the diagnosis made that the nation was suffering from a deep malaise. Mr. Mondale's chief of staff as Vice President Richard Moe said, Mondale didn't understand it, he didn't agree with it, and he said so. It produced the single greatest strain in four years in the White House. In Jimmy Carter's diary, Keeping Faith, he notes Mondale's disagreement and says, It concerned him greatly. He just, you know, he's running for the future. He's running to be President Mondale. In fact, when John Glenn attacks Carter, he's shocked, shocked that anyone who is a Democrat could do that. The blessing and the curse of a former vice president. You have to distance a little, but you can also clobber any presidential candidate who dares to attack a former president of his own party, no matter how unsuccessful or successful they may have been. There's no real mystery. There isn't even much of a Will Carter run. He pretty much says before he leaves the White House, he didn't think he would be in public office again, and he wouldn't assume leadership of the party. That's just fine with House Speaker Tip O'Neill leading the mini-convention and speaking first. He's not really a big fan. And in May 11, 1982, Carter endorses his former VP Mondale. That really settles nothing in Philadelphia. The party's still deciding what to do. It adopts its new rules with a 29-member board. Congressman Leon Panetta of California said, we've got to come up with bold new alternatives. There seems to be a feeling that our good spirits and Reagan's problems will be enough, but they are not. Paul Songus, senator from Massachusetts, not on the West Coast, but aligned with the Atari's favors, helping manufacturing firms with industrial revenue bonds and urban development action grants. 
If some social programs have to be curtailed to cut the deficit, fine. You can talk about all the social programs you want, but there's no substitute for a viable economy, Sangha said. This may take us into conservative Republican turf, but if that's what it takes, so be it. Ted Kennedy was among those pushing back on the Ataris and others. He says in Philadelphia, Rethinking our ideas should never be an excuse for retreating from our ideals. Mondale agreed with him on that. You can't have a banner with a microchip on it. Philadelphia didn't come out the way that most of the party leaders want. There was sweetness and light, as one reporter described, but the conference approved a raft of bland policy positions that will win few converts. Carter wasn't there in Philadelphia, but his influence was, and his influence was in the 84 race all over the place in the form of his vice president. Carter picked Mondale, Mondale's running, he's sort of still in the picture. It's the elephant in the room. A party post-regnum with a former president in the mix still living, who is not re-elected, but still a factor. Of course a factor. You have that in our politics now with better air conditioning. This describes the next year to probably 2023, maybe even into 2024, and what's going to happen. And there's no easy comparison in politics. It's not 1982. Trump is going to be way more influential in the Republican Party today than Carter was in the Democratic Party of 1982. Yet this is true. Ex-presidents always have some influence. They can make news, test loyalties, endorse. People can align to them. They can jump into the race. They can hold out the threat of jumping into the race. That's not new. That's not something just happening this cycle. Candidates have to make decisions, run or not run. Do they start attacking the former president? Do they do it publicly in their statements? Do they do it through leaking things? Do they treat the former president as a primary opponent? Or do they treat them with kid gloves, careful to possibly cull their support? For Mondale, it wasn't that hard, and it wasn't that long of a period. Longer than he may have wanted. He meets with Carter in 1981. He pretty makes it, much makes it clear to all media that he's going to first see if Jimmy's running before he decides. What probably you want is a few months into the next year for it to be clear and apparent that that former president is not running. Well, here's the way I see it. Here's the way we see it, and the country should see it, that the people have spoken... And we respect the majesty of the democratic system. I just called uh, Governor Clinton over in Little Rock and offered my congratulations. He did run a strong campaign. I wish him well in the White House. Pretty much had this with George H.W. Bush when he was defeated by Bill Clinton in 1993. He made it clear he was out of politics for the foreseeable future. That's still a comment that media can jump on, but it really did open it up for Bob Dole and others to start slugging against Clinton. So we can isolate three factors in this situation. The party in the White House, you know, the current president and the current president's administration, the former president out of the White House, and the party out of the White House, including all of the presidential aspirants. An interesting dance takes place. Bush's exit meant that we could focus on the latter, those who were going right after Clinton. We don't know what we are for, but we know what we are against, Ed Rollins said. Bob Teeter said, 
the party in 1993 faced no ideological swing. There was no reason to go towards Clinton because Clinton had received less than 50% of the vote. Why should we change? You know, and this is very common. You see it in 1982. Why should we change? Just because this guy Reagan won. We want to go with Ted Kennedy. Actually, probably our mistake. Definitely a, a subthesis of Rick Perlstein's Reagan land. Uh, we had him on last year. Is this? And Jimmy Carter was already going to write for some in the party anyway. So he just got defeated by somebody more right than him. The answer according to party activists, go left, go with Ted Kennedy. You see that. But there were little uh, attempts to say maybe we should moderate a bit, particularly on the issue of abortion for the GOP in 1993. The RLC, or Republican Leadership Committee, is formed. This is to mirror what the Democrats formed in the 1980s, the Southern Democratic Leadership Conference. The RLC consisted of the big leaders were Christine Todd Whitman, Susan Molinari, John Rowland of Connecticut, governor there, William Weld of Massachusetts. But it never quite had much influence. Really, if you're the party out of the White House, you don't want the focus to be on any of these banners or slogans or, or things. You want it to be on the president, current president, messing things up, not your former president still walking around, and perhaps being a reminder of a president that messed up during their term. In 79, in 1980, there were a lot of Republicans on the right of politics, the Reagan supporters in particular, who would have liked to see Gerald Ford out of the race and out of the news. And on that, they did not get their wish. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. If there is to be any change, it has to be predicated on the arrangements that I would expect. You'd catch him on the course. The former president, Gerald Ford, was playing a lot of golf in 1977 and 1978, and a little in 1979. He's out of the White House. Why not? But he was out of the White House in a squeaker. He got 48% of the vote, Jimmy Carter, 50. Is that really a negative mandate? The primary against Reagan in the Republican Party was also a bruiser, and everybody knew it. And Reagan was definitely, definitely 
not going to say he was running for president while he ran for president, his radio talk show, his appearances. Ford had no radio talk show, yet he seemed to sign up for every golf tournament he could around the country and indulged in friendly party fundraisers and talks. Do you hear him tell it? He was just working on his putting. I'm enjoying things now as they are right now. The New York Times said, if you wanted to see a happy man, look at Gerald Ford. More pleased with life in retirement. Quotes around the word retirement than he seemed in the White House. How could he be a political threat? Working on his chip shot and his memoir, boosting that soon-to-be Gerald Ford Library in New Michigan. Go Wolverines. It couldn't mean anything. What about governing the nation rested with this plaid-panted, wood-clubbed man in the light blue sweater? Ooh. Nice drive, Mr. President. He just made some money controversially signing a deal with the Franklin Mint for special presidential commemorative medals, including one featuring his own image. Yet, every time Ford was asked about his future, he took a swing. He'd say something about no plans, kid about his age. He was 66, Reagan 69. Even told a group of reporters on a Tokyo trip that flat out he wasn't running for president. But he also couldn't resist saying things like, the political bug is hard to resist, or one never knows. Mr. Ford did go to Washington and found time to stop by and see President Carter. And he agreed with Carter where he could. He still spoke for Carter's plan to return the Panama Canal to Panama, even though a lot of the GOP and the Reagan supporters hated that plan. He also made a general supportive comment. The Congress ought to support the president more on foreign policy. Now, he said the president and not Carter, so he was abstract. But it was helpful to Carter, as Carter was trying to get his policies passed, particularly SALT, treaty with the Soviet Union. Give the president more leeway, Ford said. I know about Watergate, but the pendulum swung too far away from the president and to Congress. Now, of course, maybe the president he wanted to give leeway to was himself in a few years. But Carter got no validation from his buddy Jerry on domestic policy. Ford was clear. They screwed up. And even though defeated, he could show something. He had gotten stagflation, this measure we used in the 70s to combine unemployment and inflation, from 12 to 5%. And now it was back up. And for an ex-president, a lot of meetings with people. Meeting with Menachem Begin, the Prime Minister of Israel. Fed Chair Arthur Burns, and that one-on-one with Henry Kissinger. He logged more than 20,000 miles, lectured at 20 colleges. Is this retirement? Something else. Ford proposes a tax cut of $68 billion for middle-income taxpayers. Popular idea, but not the stuff of a memoir writer. Who does that as an ex-president proposing new policies? And there were these mysterious statements continuously, I am not a candidate, but I learned a long time ago never to rule anything out. And even to one reporter flatly says, why should I announce I'm running? I do better in the polls when I don't. He was leading Reagan in some polls nationally in 77, and as late as 79, still leading in the polls in New Hampshire, which would be the first primary in 1980. That's the ex-president advantage, though. Their stature, having been in the White House means that, you know, even if they didn't do a particularly great job, 
People know they can do the job. They've seen them in the chair before, and they could always be called into service. So they could make a credible case that whatever statements they make politically, it doesn't matter. They're a former bearer of the presidential seal, and if duty calls, duty calls. Another candidate can't do that. Announce that you're not running, and poof, you're done with news coverage. Then there were draft Ford 1980 committees, which Ford not only doesn't discourage, but at one point says, this is a nice thing. When he did a five-day visit to D.C. and had policy conferences and talks, a New York Times reporter said, we can draw no other conclusion that he hasn't ruled out a full term. Still, the five Iron Quixote that praises Howard Baker and George Bush, two lesser candidates in the 1980 race. Doesn't include Reagan. In fact, what he says is, this race doesn't need a Ford or a Reagan right now. Aha. What he's saying, essentially, is let the other guys have a chance to run, see if there's any new voices before big names like us, me and Ronnie, get again. But if Ford and Reagan aren't in the mix right now, that hurts Reagan way more than Ford. Ford, as a former president, will always be mentioned. It's somewhat passive, somewhat deliberate. Truth is, whatever it was, because there's going to be people that criticize this. Some of his former aides are like, you have to announce and get in the race now. Whatever it was, we'll discuss. It'll come closer than any of the former presidents who were defeated for re-election ever came to getting back to the White House. You know, not talking about Grover Cleveland stuff, talking about the modern era. And if that had happened, it would have seemed brilliant. A few curveballs came his way. A man who is president should be able to do the job of six. Truman stresses the president's load, the headline blared in 1956. The former president said, A man who is president should be able to do the job of six, or not take the job. series of comments that Truman made during a trip to New York City early in 1956 in response to the questions he was getting if he would accept a draft. This former president who didn't get a lot of news media in Independence, Missouri after he left the White House was all of a sudden getting at least 25 reporters following him wherever he went in New York. He could be drafted technically because Truman was exempt from the 22nd Amendment that presents, prevents presidents from serving more than two terms. It didn't apply to him as the sitting president, specifically in the language of that amendment. He could have run in 52, but he passed. He did participate in that convention in 52 as well when an upstart, Estes Kefauver of Tennessee, won a lot of the primaries. There is a movement at the floor of the convention to draft the governor of Illinois, Adelaide Stevenson. It's a whole story. could be a whole cast. But the key point is Truman helped that draft effort, and Truman announced Stevenson at the podium as the Democratic Party's candidate. And right after that, Stevenson disappointed Harry S. Truman in every way. He didn't want him to campaign for him, kept him at a distance. There's a letter that he never sent to Stevenson that said, it appears you don't want me to be part of this campaign, so I'll remain at the White House. Didn't send it, but it was written. 
He told others how Stevenson acted was a mystery. And then just how Stevenson ran against Ike, Truman didn't like it. And he would make it clear in 1956. He described himself to reporters as a retired has-been. If nominated, I won't accept. As clear as could be. But reporters kept asking. If I was 46 or 50, the age of Lyndon Johnson or Averill Harriman, it might be different. He was 72 in this election. And not only that, the comments he made, the work of six men, that could apply to Eisenhower, the president that was 66 and also had just suffered a heart attack. He said he wouldn't comment if they applied to Eisenhower, but reporters could connect the dots. The presidency, Truman said, is a killing job and a man must be young enough. The job has killed many a man. I could name half a dozen. To be clear, this is 56 before the JFK incident. But there he is. Give him hell, Harry, in full force. Even as a former president, news people following him, he kept telling the reporters they're barking up the wrong tree. He breakfasts with one of the candidates, New York Governor Averill Harriman. That should be a signal. The party was locked. Between Kefauver, Stevenson, Harriman, a few others, Symington. Adelaide Stevenson struck many as a stately but egghead governor who had already lost in 52. But from the Stevenson side, he wanted to run again. First of all, he felt like he was a creature of the party tied to Truman and others. Ike also was a bar of soap, a box of cornflakes, an advertised presidency. You didn't know what you're getting. Now there were four years of a record. Stevenson decides to run again, and woo, the first thing that happens is he loses the Minnesota primary to Estes Kefauver, who's running a strong campaign. Truman didn't like that young upstart Kefauver in the 52 election. He warms up in 56, because now he doesn't like Stevenson. Said one paper, if he has anything to do with it, no candidate with a moderate strategy will be nominated in Chicago. Harry S. Truman says, the campaign must hit hard, as he did in 48. And he took a swing at Ike. We are going to give people a chance to vote for a president, not a regency or a part-time chairman of the board. And as Stevenson had a tough go in those primaries, talk of an open convention prevailed. More newspapers said that there was a chance that Truman might be nominated on a draft, that there, there might be, even against his wishes, state delegations that wanted to do it. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance Podcast. 
Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Stevenson, Truman said, if he wanted to win, must give them hell the way he did. The New York Times described, Mr. Truman's method involves a homely handshaking approach and a vernacular of articulating oratory that is natural to Kefauver and alien to Stevenson. When you actually get to the convention in Chicago in 56, Truman comes right out and backs Averill Harriman, the governor of New York, and says straight out that Stevenson lacked the fighting spirit we need to win. There's a story that one reporter has that where Stevenson actually is hearing all of this criticism of him and goes up to Truman and says, what is it that I'm doing wrong? And Truman looks out the window and sees a man walking and says, what you need to do is be able to reach that man. Russell Baker said in the New York Times, Harry Truman had the Democratic Party chewing its fingernails down to the cuticle today, and he loved every second of it. Mr. President was so exhilarated as a small boy given free run of the circus. It was for naught, though. Stevenson did win the nomination in 56, and Truman fell in line, saying that he now had the support of the old man from Missouri. Truman did go out and energetically campaign for Stevenson. Jerry R. Ford was not as visible in the run-up to the convention in Detroit in 1980, but he'd enter the drama anyway. And it happens in an odd way. First of all, any kind of movement to start a draft forward, if Gerald Ford was even hoping for that, doesn't happen. And what he runs up against is a surprising thing. Reagan loses Iowa, and George H.W. Bush actually beats him there. All of the draft Ford movement, the moderate voices in the Republican Party are going for real candidate Bush versus we don't know candidate Jerry Ford. For instance, Thomas Keene, an assemblyman soon to be governor of New Jersey, would start running Bush's operations in that state. Yeah, and otherwise might have been for Ford. This is, for a short time, a little 1980 GOP primary where Bush wins Michigan, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Rhode Island and Maine, Delaware. But Reagan wins everywhere else. And there's other people running, too, taking votes away. Connolly, Baker, Anderson, none of them win states. Ford doesn't enter the primaries. Yet something odd happens on the eve of the convention. So in the early days of Detroit, Reagan's walking around with a speech in his pocket, ready to deliver, announcing, there is one person I want as my running mate, and that is Gerald Ford. It would be an unprecedented thing to have a former president who would be as vice president on the ticket, but this was an unprecedented situation. Gerald Ford was an unelected president. Still, he had never, he didn't win in 76. It's coming from an interesting place. It's really coming from the Reagan camp more than the Ford camp. Dick Worthen, the, po- the Reagan's pollsters, does polls of all the candidates, Bush, Kemp, Donald Rumsfeld, Howard Baker, all the people that could run for vice president. And none of them do as well as Gerald Ford. You got to remember, we're looking back at hindsight and seeing that the election was a blowout in 1980. That wasn't clear in the summer of 1980, not at all. 
Jimmy Carter could have repaired relations with Ted Kennedy. They didn't know that the Democratic Convention came after this. So they didn't know that there was going to be that craziness in, in New York in 1980. The hostages could have come back. Carter could have increased in the polls. There was all these variables that could have happened. The Anderson third party could not have run. A lot of Reagan's policies were against the grain of American polling. If they wanted the best chance to win, this was the dream ticket. And conservatives who supported Reagan largely bought it. Jesse Helms was a big fan, for instance, of this dream ticket. And people like Jerry Falwell or Phyllis Shafley, who were supporting Reagan conservative activists, would fall in line. And another thing to consider, Reagan didn't really like the other choices. And you start with George Bush. His supporters didn't like him. He didn't like him. You know, in response to one of his aides, Stuart Spencer, he says, voodoo economics, why should I? Bush had clobbered Reagan using voodoo economics to explain his economic policy. Here's uh, Rick Perlstein from Reaganland. The last time they'd seen each other was at the Texas debate, which had concluded with Reagan seeming almost to laugh at Bush while answering a question about his running mate deliberation. It goes without saying that anyone you would recommend to the convention would have to carry out the programs that you have promised the American people you are going to implement. They will have to agree with the Kemp-Roth tax bill. This is what Bush had called voodoo economics. But Reagan's grievances with Bush extended far beyond that. His radio ads, Bush's, compared Reagan's inexperience and cluelessness to Carter's. Can we afford to make the same mistake twice, Bush's ad asked. And from the Bush side, the Texan was said to be still simmering from Reagan's snub of his son's, George W. Bush's, 1978 congressional campaign. And here, on the other hand, Ford was at in Detroit making warm statements about Reagan. This country means too much to me to comfortably park on the bench, so when this convention fields the team for Governor Reagan, count me in. Ford actually wants to make this statement and go back to his home in Palm Springs, and aides are like, actually, you may want to stick around. With a lot of this coming from the Reagan side, negotiations begin between the 69th floor where Reagan is and the 70th floor where Ford is in this hotel in Detroit, back and forth. You got people like Dick Cheney. You got people like Henry Kissinger involved. Um, one of the things they talk about is possibly, at least the Ford side wants, if we're going to do this, Henry Kissinger is Secretary of State. Alan Greenspan, who's one of Ford's former economic advisors, as Treasury Secretary. Also, Ford probably is going to have to do more than just the normal VP. We want definite, you know, what he's in control of. Things like the OMB, the Office of Management of Budget, that would be uh, management and budget that would be under Ford's control. The National Security Council would be something that Ford would be controlling. Um, interesting things. And so it's pretty clear it's Reagan doing the selling, Ford team doing the buying here. You get to where the, none of the delegates know that this is all going on at all. And you get to the point where there's this interview Walter Cronkite gets, he starts hearing things, gets Ford into their booth. The whole convention came to a stop. Everybody was looking up at the CBS anchor booth, trying to figure out, some who had radios, uh, what Walter Cronkite was saying and what Gerald Ford was saying. Ford is saying various things that are pretty vague. Uh, they, they'd be happy to 
be part of something, they'd be happy to go home, nothing, nothing much there. If there is to be any change, it has to be predicated on the arrangements that I would expect as a vice president in a relationship with the president. As we had indicated earlier, during this time, there's this beating on the door, and that's Barbara Walters from Rival Network, ABC, who really wanted to get in there and have her cameras going, as well as the CBS cameras. They're not going to let that happen. Uh, but through Cronkite, he suggests, suggests language that Ford doesn't actually use and calls it, uh, the agreement, a co-presidency. And Ford seems to like that. Both... Reagan watching on TV and Bush watching on TV are shocked by this, that anyone considering the vice presidency would make any kind of demands like this publicly. Crazy. It still doesn't stop there. There's still a series of negotiations after this interview. There's a tape recording of an understanding that says that Vice President Ford would head a White House executive office. That means he supervises OMB and NSC. And, uh, serving as a chief operating officer while Reagan would be the CEO. There's a joke that's going around people in the know in the Joe Louis arena. Ford will be president before nine, after five, and on weekends. The rumors are so intense that a stagehand at the convention just sees, sees George Bush and goes up to him and says, I, you know, I'm sorry. I think you would have made a good vice president. He's like, I'm not sure what you're talking about. It's like, oh, it's going to be Ford. And haven't you heard? And Bush finishes up the interviews that he has to make because he officially lost the nomination contest. That was no surprise. Goes back to his suite. He confers with his eldest son, George W. Bush, and says, look, I'm not going to get this thing. And they go up and then see the rest of the staff. And Bush's staff is like, that's not true. That's just a rumor. Jerry, uh, you did say that the motorcade already was en route when you took the air a moment ago, right? Yes, sir, that's correct. Well, then it must be here. It can't take over a minute and a half in a presidential-type motorcade, a presidential candidate-type motorcade to run down that uh, that uh, freeway, practically, that, that embankment. The news anchors are still trying to figure out, like, what's going on on the floor, and Cronkite kicks it over to Leslie Stahl. Leslie Stahl has made uh, as more on why this demonstration is being prolonged, uh, uh, Leslie and expecting just to get kind of a mood of the crowd in Detroit. And instead, she ends up breaking news. She's heard this from a surprising news right on air. Oh, Walter, I am just being told by a high lieutenant that the choice is Bush. I am being told that the choice is Bush. What goes on from there? And there's a lot of different viewpoints of this story, but what's been made pretty clear is that really every time Reagan has talked to Ford about this, and he has talked uh, generally to Ford in person about this idea. Ford says no, and Ford is the one resistant. There's a little bit of inkling coming from that idea of maybe a co-presidency, but what we seem to think is Ford said no a final time. He visited Reagan at the suite, and this time Reagan accepted. None of the events of this 1980 convention are scripted which is going to make it no different than the Democratic convention we covered last year, but that's another story. Catch out that old episode that we have in August 2020. So Reagan picks Bush. I don't think it's a huge deal for them. I don't think that this VP choice for somebody like himself that had always been the star performer is is a huge deal. So even though he has reservations about Bush, it's basically kind of a campaign slash party decision. There aren't a lot of other choices anyway that make sense. Bush, though, is has to confirm in his hotel suite that he agrees with the entire line-by-line 
Reagan's major agenda, and he does. He's the nominee. The rest is absolute history. How would it have gone with Reagan Ford in the White House? You know, it's an interesting question. There's a lot of people said that just would have been a disaster. I think you you do have to look. Reagan still would have been top of the ticket. But I think it's something that I'll explore on the Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash MHCBUYP, where I'll talk a little bit about that. We'll speculate how that might have been. Requires more thought. So far, though, accepting Grover Cleveland, you know, not going back that far in history, in modern history, that's the farthest that a former president has got. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We're part of Airwave Media Network. That's airwavemedia.com. Lots of other good shows there. Patreon, as we indicated, is patreon.com slash mhcbuip. Helps support the show as little as $3 a month. Visit the myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com site for a lot more archives. And if you like the program, please tell someone about it. Thanks for listening.